Hi, this is Ruby Carrot from Cold Fusion Now. Today is December 16, 2012, and we're speaking with Bob Neverett, paramedia ecologist and one of the people who has been intimately involved in accelerating cold fusion into our world today. Bob, are you with us? Yes, hello, Ruby. Um, not only am I a paramedic ecologist, I'm a scientist now since I've successfully uh, made a cold fusion battery. And our battery is different because I assume everybody else is trying to get or working with uh, increased heat, maybe a little power. But first of all, we have, when we first developed this a couple years ago, so much power is unleashed we triggered a couple of earthquakes. Now, I'm not saying which earthquakes those were, but I just want to put it on record, that's what I do. That's what I'm involved with now. Now, we've learned to control the energy, the power, uh, so that uh, not, earthquakes aren't triggered. But I want the listeners, if they've only got 30 seconds to listen to this or a minute, uh, I want them to know that that's how big of an operation our situation is, how, how powerful it is. So uh, now you wanted to go into the history, I assume, of uh, my interest in cold fusion. Yes, um, I would uh, like to definitely hear more about your cold fusion battery and how it's different. But, um, you know, uh, you, Bob Neverett, are the one person who told me that cold fusion was indeed real back in 2004. Prior to that, uh, in 1989, I was a physics student, and uh, when we heard about the announcement of Drs. Martin Fleischman and Stanley Pons at our school, there was so much excitement, and quickly thereafter, everybody kind of became deflated, and um, we heard basically then that it was a mistake and that it wasn't really real. I'd like to get some background from you. When did you first hear about this, and when did you realize that there was indeed uh, something to it? I first heard about um, cold fusion and that term on March 23rd, March 24th, 1989. I heard the news item, and then a, uh, a person I know named Michael Blake Reed was speaking in Toronto that night, 24th, 25th to 26th, and he told me, uh, according to his sources, uh, that this was real, and this was going to be a phenomenal breakthrough, and Pons and Fleischmann will be uh, great, considered great scientists in history. So I immediately started looking for literature on it, or whatever I could, news, and pretty quickly the fiasco information happened, and then I found that the only uh, person who was documenting the um, the uh, ongoing investigation was Eugene Malov, who I became aware of and was in touch with. And then I noticed that the uh, Executive Intelligence Review uh, were monitoring the conferences. So for about a year, as news trickled out, um, I looked at it with the confidence that uh, Michael Blake Reed had given me. And uh, then when, by 91, when the... Uh, First conference, I think, happened, and I think the Japanese guy was caused a big uh, sensation at that conference. Plus Pons and Fleischmann, um, 
I said, well, there is. The labs are starting to validate it. I think it was within two years there were about 600 labs that had validated it in different ways around the world. But certainly by then the, the world was not talking about it as if it was a, uh, a, uh, a big breakthrough. So mm-hmm. the interesting thing is since I, had, since I was um, an expert on Marshall McLuhan's work uh, and uh, was a, an archivist, um, voluntary archivist for Marshall McLuhan, um, and I helped organize his archives after uh, he passed on. Uh, I, I was aware that inf- the information environment was not what people thought. I was aware that if you had a press conference and uh, you sent out your information, there was probably not going to be the kind of reception you want because, first of all, uh, the digital era was starting at that point and there was so much information happening, over, you know, um, information overload that people were being very passive and just accepting what the mainstream news said just as a way of keeping a, a focus on reality of, oh, okay, this is what the authorities say. There's all this other information I could look into on cable, but uh, that's, that's just for entertainment. I'm not going to take it seriously. Until the White House announces uh, something's real, um, then that's uh, what i got to wait for. Uh, then I'm not going to take seriously anything else. So the White House never announced cold fusion. And it came out that they had uh, faxed, the Fonz of Fleischmann had faxed their information here and there, and a lot of confusion. There seemed to be a naivety about, um, about making a press conference. Okay, so uh, even though the White House wasn't going to announce it, or any uh, respected authority aligned with the White House, um, I started thinking about how this meant, what this meant in terms of uh, media dynamics as McLuhan laid them out. Now, quickly, McLuhan said that every invention, every technology is an extension of one of our senses, either external senses or inner senses. And we knew that by the time of the satellite, that the satellite extended not our bodies, not our senses, but the whole planet. And um, I thought about that. And I was thinking how Bucky Fuller said that the satellite or the rocket ship was uh, the first time a human being could live inside uh, an apparatus that simulated the Earth, you know, I had oxygen and, and necessities so that you could live in a little Earth while outside of the uh, atmosphere of, the, uh, of this planet. So mm. I considered the satellite as an extension of Earth, of the Earth habitat, our habitat. So that was the final mm. extension. So then I'm looking at well, what happened next. Well, the digital media came in, and the digital media didn't extend our senses or the planet. It just extended the machines themselves, uh, the uh, analog uh, electric machines or any digital machines that had been developed. So you had this extension of, of um, technologies by itself with human beings sitting on the sidelines. Uh, that might have been partly the situation at the time Pons and Fleischmann had their uh, press conference. They didn't know that uh, the Android meme is not interested in uh, what human beings or what I call chemical bodies are saying about the media. The media is interacting for itself and feeding on itself. And um, so I developed this theory that the satellite was an extension of first and second nature because you had the technical analog electrical media that went into making the, the satellite but it was an extension of our, of our physical habitat, what we would call first nature, as well as being technologically second nature. So I decided that the uh, fusion, 
that the satellite represented a first and second nature. And then when the digital technology took over, which I called the Android meme, where it was extending its parts, I decided this was fusion, cold fusion, in the sense of more energy goes out than goes in. That's how uh, Ponza Fleischmann was talked about in the beginning. You you violate the uh, laws of uh, entropy, and you have neg entropy. So more energy is coming out than it's going in. So as the people went online in 95, 96, once the HTTP uh, protocols were out there and Netscape was available and everybody could get on pretty easily with their dial-up, uh, I decided that the, uh, the Android meme was trying to simulate uh, the actual merger that Cold Fusion represented. Cold Fusion was the merger of first and second nature with negentropic uh, outcome. But analog media and the digital extension of that in the software world, uh, you know, the Microsoft, uh, Apple world, that was communication taking on uh, the characteristics of negentropy that Cold Fusion had, where you have uh, you have information 24/7, and you can't stop it, and it's almost negentropy. It's still a world of friction, but. Uh, People would have to regard it as people began to regard it as well. This is the endless utopia of information. As a matter of fact, it's almost too much. So I decided to say that the Android meme, the second phase of technology extending itself, was miming in software terms what could only be done in hardware terms. And hardware terms is what Pons and Fleischmann did. They took a battery. Uh, or they developed this battery, and the idea was that it would give people energy so that their physical, chemical bodies would have uh, endless support for our physical uh, shelter, which had never happened before. We never had a situation where we had endless uh, energy keeping the fire uh, going, the electrical requirements in our, in our habitat uh, continuously happening without any more input, never uh, ran out, ran out of energy. That situation uh, was what uh, was anticipated by the implications of Pons and Fleischmann's breakthrough, but it was surrounded by the Android meme, which was giving us information software, information beliefs, information, 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 perpetually, 24-7, as if it was negentropy and didn't die. So as I watched the Android meme take over people's interest and fascination, and people got very involved in extending their bodies and their beings through the Android meme, meme that they, uh, the hardware issues of cold fusion and actual physical shelter seemed to be sidelined. And it wasn't until the um, Android meme collapsed in 2008, that's what we call the collapse of Wall Street, and even though technology kept being produced and refined in Web 2.0 towards Web, 2.0, towards Web 3.0, um, people realized that something had broken and the sociological trust factor in the information environment collapsed so that banks couldn't trust each other in disseminating their uh, funds and transfers and that. So a serious breach in the software hypnosis, the Android meme hypnosis, happened in the, a few years ago. This left the world ripe for a new kind of uh, physical attention, attention to our physical bodies and whatever else we could find out about our physical bodies. And I say that's what I was part of since 2009 is finding a new energy 
that supersedes the Android memes software mimicry of Ponds and Fleischmann's cold fusion and uh, actually um, provides something incredible for the, for the physical body. So that, that's the, in brief, the, um, the sequence. Now, in 95, in, in I wrote an essay, Up the Orphan Ante, where I spelled out how the fusion of first and second nature uh, was um, implied by the Android meme. But in physical fact, uh, hardware terms, Pons and Fleischmann seem to be pointing to that. And since Pons and Fleischmann, if you start reading uh, Infinite Energy magazine, which I did, there was all kinds of technologies offered or suggested, different avenues, different routes, different notions of alchemy, all kinds of things were, were uh, floated. But nothing stuck, nothing held. So uh, also we're uh, fully aware that the... Uh, uh, Pons and Fleischmann in November 98, they were interviewed in Wired Magazine. Wired Magazine belatedly did a catch-up on the whole cold fusion world. And uh, Pons and Fleischmann said he could understand why uh, his breakthrough, him and Pons, uh, I, th I think it was Fleischmann who spoke, uh, might have been Pons, um, said that he could understand... Uh, yeah, he, he, he could understand why uh, there was not much encouragement for their invention, uh, by military people, the Pentagon and that. And he said basically they would be worried that this um, battery would get out and some kids or somebody would start playing with it and make some bombs around it. And uh, so he uh, sort of resignedly uh, said, yes, um, that's the problem. If you announce a new energy that has a new power source that has this kind of consequence, um, you can expect the Pentagon to uh, take it from you, do something in the name of national security. So... In light of what my and my colleagues have developed, we're fully aware of that situation, so we are being very cagey and, and um, interesting how we are bringing it forth, this very powerful thing. So basically my stuff uh, that I helped invent is not enhancing energy or heat. It is actually uh, making it possible so that you have endless electricity. So we're calling that uh, an extension of power to uh, you know, unlimited, unlimited uh, environmental access. So, uh, question away about it, what, what I'm saying. <laughs> wow. Um, well, that was uh, a huge amount of information about that history. And when we talk about the you know, effects... Hey, hey, Ruby? Ruby, if, yes. you, if you find it hard to figure out what direction, let's talk a bit about ourselves. Because you represented to me, uh, I met you through Jerry Fialka, and you represent to me the, the average person with conventional awareness, thought they were educated and sophisticated, and even a little hip and even a little musical and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, uh, even knew the Ramones, knew everybody uh, out there in the East Coast. All that scene is that it was curious to me the blindness the citizen had about this energy uh, situation. Do you remember Randy Randy Copang? Randy Copang. You remember him? He was a friend of um, Jerry's. Maybe this was before your time, but Randy Copang was a friend of mine through Jerry Fialka. And so I would visit Jerry in Venice, and often Saturday morning I'd stay overnight there, and there'd be some NPR show or uh, what was that one Jerry called? Bubble U? Uh, KB, KB, double, W, uh, and KPFK. And one day I was there with Randy Copang, and on comes a guy talking about cold fusion. Who was the guy? It might have been Eugene Malov. And here I've been telling Randy, what I just told you, this mouthful, the metaphysics and all that, 
uh, uh, that I just went through. I had written about it. He'd read my, read my essay, and I, I, he didn't know what I meant. He didn't believe it was real. But when he heard Eugene Malov being interviewed on KPFK, then it was real. It's like, Bob, you actually are talking about something real. And so it was a real problem to, to get people to even uh, listen to me without some media validation. And uh, you were in that same boat, if I remember. If I met you in 2004, uh, you were in, interested, interested in peak oil. And uh, you tell me that a few years later, you suddenly agreed that cold fusion was happening. How, how, what the heck changed your mind? Well, you told me cold fusion was indeed real in 2004 when we were at a McLuhan meeting where uh, Jerry Fialka and I hosted discussions about Marshall McLuhan's work. And uh, you had known Jerry for many years at that time. And I had known you since 1999. And at that time, uh, my friend Eli and I had just learned about peak oil, and we were just floored. Um, I saw the implications of what it would mean when this oil, or uh, when we didn't have access to cheap oil anymore, and uh, I was just uh, really wondering what I would do because, um, to me, it was my life changed when I w learned about these implications. And you, uh, I remember at this meeting, said, oh, we don't have to worry about peak oil because we're going to get cold fusion. And I said, what? I thought that was, uh, you know, a mistake. I didn't know that it was actually real at that oh, time. I see. You got that. That's because you learned about it in your student capacity. When I learned about it in 1989, it was shortly thereafter that the word was that it was a mistake. And right. I really didn't think about it again until 2004 when I, heard, when I learned of peak oil. And, and students, uh, today, students today, unless this movie, uh, The Believers, uh, has an effect, but students up to this point are still subject to that delusion or uh, misinformation, disinformation uh, in school, aren't they? They're still going around, if they ever even think of it, being told that uh, it's a mistake. Well, exactly. And, and um, that's why Cold Fusion Now started to uh, sort of accelerate this process. But uh, just back in 2004, when you told me this, I was a little incredulous uh, as I was, you know, when I, when I first met you and heard about your work and the things that you uh, discussed, your models of uh, technology in our society based on McLuhan's work, uh, it's tough to understand, and so it takes a while to interiorize those ideas. So after you told me cold fusion was real, I checked it out. I, at that time, there wasn't a whole lot online, but there was, there was several websites where you could get the scientific papers, and one of them, uh, lenr.org, L-E-N-R.org, is one of those sites. And it was very clear that you could 
um, there were scientists that were continuing to work on this and make advances. So, you know, over time, I I began to understand that this was indeed the only viable solution to uh, our energy predicament. Why, so did you after believe, why did you believe what you read uh, in these studies and whatever you did read? Because uh, the people doing research uh, were very serious about it, and they uh, were sharing their scientific results within their own small community, and um, uh, it would be, I mean, to not to not accept those results, which were done very seriously, would be, I mean, that wouldn't make sense. Yeah, and you knew enough physics <laughs> as a student to uh, to understand what these uh, claims were. Well, I can't say I understand all the science, but it's clear that the caliber of research is so high that you have to have blinders on to not accept it. And that's part of the, uh, the issue that we have today is that we have the old hardware people, the old pa energy paradigm, uh, which is still in control of the visual space. And they've made so much noise uh, saying that it's not real, that they've been able to continue this myth. The scientists have not had funding for two decades, and yet they've made significant advances. And so part of this is how can we move forward when you have such a stranglehold from a visual space paradigm, the old hardware people, the fossil fuel industry, the uh, the uh, Department of Energy, which has refused to even accept the reality of this. Um, should we worry about that at all, or uh, you know, should we just continue on as we are? <laughs> How does a mental imprint change? When you talk about the effects preceding the causes, we're living the cold fusion environment right now. Um, how in, does the this meme, in the Android meme, in software terms, endless information, uh, endless uh, variety, endless everything, for the mind, I guess you could say, for the mind, for, and for some of our senses, um, that's endless energy. As def uh, that's negentropy, yes. We live in a cold fusion simulation, but the actual battery is so... Uh, paradigmatic shifting is it's such a huge, huge shift that I don't think it'll ever be allowed to be um, introduced into the public uh, without um, the old hardware boys in control of it. Uh, so that um, that is square one. Now, there are ways to get around that because the hardware boys are based in the United States. And uh, China and uh, undeveloped parts of the world, uh, with the help of China, they don't have to listen to the Pentagon anymore. So they will encourage this stuff on their own or uh, with other things. So I don't think Americans are going to get it right away. That's, but it's not, uh, if, you, if you don't limit yourself to thinking as an American and think around the whole planet, 
and say, well, uh, maybe uh, China will develop it, and I'll go move there or buy it from them. So well, we're not, um, not going to get it locally. But if now we here, this is my dilemma. I have I have the battery now. How do I uh, distribute to you and the rest of the world? Uh, you know, knowing that I will be immediately uh, accused of being a terrorist if I do it publicly. So I'm going to have to do it secretly. You're going to be totally, you know, uh, invisibly. And probably the best way to do it would go through China. They seem to be pretty uh, powerful right now uh, in lots of ways, just uh, economically and militarily and all these levels. So China, fortunately, is not limited to the old hardware model. As a matter of fact, you know, their culture um, says that they, uh, they saw this coming. So uh, their elites, our uh, scientific elites, are a little uh, more amenable to this. So I'm very optimistic uh, now that I'm talking to China. Well, um, Cold Fusion Now operates with the idea that this technology is somewhat simple, despite the fact that it is a mysterious reaction which uh, scientists have had a very difficult time trying to uh, model. And uh, I've borrowed your phrase and called it the Rumpelstiltskin reaction. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, when we do get this uh, nailed down, the conditions to make this work uh, seem to be made up of some very simple elements. Uh, we can use regular water and uh, nickel, the, the simple common metal nickel. We can use heavy water or deuterium and palladium. And there's also biological systems. Uh, Russians that have, deter that have uh, shown some bacteria when put in a heavy water solution transmute radioactive materials into other benign materials. So while the reaction itself is very difficult to nail down, the elements that make it up are fairly simple and that this technology will be able to be reproduced once it's figured out by anybody, you know, anybody that has a somewhat technical ability. So to me, I'm operating under the assumption that this will be uh, publicly available and that any authority will not be able to stop it once it's nailed down. No, no. Uh, if it's made in the United States, the American government just claims it. It's uh, ours. Uh, you, you can't, uh, they'll take it away from you it's, on behalf of the government and national security. So now here's the, here's the situation. The, the, partic the particulars you're naming are not really what goes into making this battery. Now we offer a tape where you can hear uh, some of the aspects. And here's what you're missing. You're missing the human fingernail. The human fingernail is very important in the battery. Now as absurd as that sounds, it's very interesting uh, and I tell anybody in the audience who uh, is inclined to believe me, start saving your fingernails. When you clip them, save them. And you will make a lot of money in the future as you provide uh, fingernails for the factories that make this battery. And I'm, I'm not being silly here. Well, of course, you, 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 I sound silly, but you, you would know. Now, the actual technology 
uh, will change the atmosphere, will change our, our, our physics. This is the reason why the scientists, and we call them limited to hardware and visual space, that's a literate uh, Newtonian and old Einsteinian model based on working out the math visually. Uh, the Android meme is a very tactile environment. Tactility is what's being extended by cold fusion. Electricity is tactility. Uh, cold fusion is, um, is electricity squared. So once you harness this stuff, it's going to break up the whole constituents of matter and substance as science knows it. And we're seeing the earthquakes and the changes in matter happening, the boiling points changing, the winds are blowing all over the planet. All these things that are happening physio physically and geographically around us are part of the bringing in of cold fusion. Cold fusion is not some little thing that, doesn't, that, that is made in a little box and then you put it in your house. It, it's a whole change to human, humanity's being that comes with this. And that's why when we uh, tested our battery, it triggered earthquakes. It, it, it affects um, a strata of conditioning that is, um, uh, needs to be shaken up and will be shaken up to the degree humans uh, can't take it or resist it. So it's not a matter of a bunch of people making it in their garage. You need a really high security and knowledgeable people being ready to so to speak, turn down the dials as you start triggering earthquakes. See, so I want you to envision that this is way bigger than what Rossi or anybody, Pons and Fleischmann, were thinking of. This is a whole transformation of the core elements of the universe. Because we think well, the universe is out there. Remember I was saying the fusion of first and second nature, if, we, if first nature is um, seas and mountains and earth and air, and I fuse that with some technical energy, it's going to affect first nature. So uh, that's never been said before in the infinite energy school or cadre or cabal. It's never been said on cold fusion now or has it. Uh, no, I don't think what you're saying has ever been said in infinite energy. Right. Now, here's what's another interesting point. You know the closest media phenomenon that gets exactly what we're doing? That is the uh, TV series Fringe. If anybody recalls watching it, uh, how Peter, this uh, person, uh, his body was necessary for the big machine he was uh, involved in. They had to stick his body in it. That was a great metaphor for human fingernails being involved in this machine. You know, the fingernail is the only thing that doesn't die. It doesn't stop in the, in the corpse. All right? Well, uh, I, I understand what you're saying because the systems that scientists have been experimenting on today uh, are uh, scientific systems based on visual space, uh, based on experimental work over two decades from uh, labs, institutions, and academia. And they have just been the vehicles to uh, create this particular reaction. And, um, but when you look at uh, you know, systems such as nickel and hydrogen, or palladium and deuterium, or uh, biological systems, you have to look beyond the outer, uh, the outer materials and look at what's common to all of those things and what conditions are activated in each of those. So the fact that it's nickel uh, may not, or palladium, or a biological 
cell or bacteria, you know, that may not be the uh, the defining feature. It's something deeper that is, you know, that is within all three of those situations. Yes, it's um, um, to get a little metaphysical about it. Um, and since we're coming up to um, Maya and Calendar Day, December twenty-first, and, and a lot of people put some immense uh, significance in that, some change. It is true that um, uh, that cold fusion is part of a major change. And it is interesting that it seems to come at the end of a, uh, a cycle, 13,000-year cycle, or halfway through a 26,000-year cycle. Uh, the timing of it is interesting, but uh, I think that we have to drop our concepts of time and space to understand the, the substance that is coming through. One way is to think about that we're remembering a power that we had once or that we're having in another world or a parallel world or very close to ourselves. I include this kind of metaphysics in my thinking about this because it is pretty amazing once you start working with it. So we may be retrieving something that's been lurking around us just to the, you know, a nanometer away or a picometer away and now it's coming forth and that's why the rocks will cry out while there is a you know, problems in uh, nature, potential uh, calderas and earthquakes and volcanoes and all this stuff. Most people around the world who uh, have access to some kind of electronic media are aware that we're in a weird, uh, uh, violent time on so many levels. Uh, I think that's uh, what you have to include in the discovery of the battery. Uh, that, you know, science thinks that they can, this is a bias of visual space, and visual space means built on the printing press and literacy. And Marshall McLuhan laid out the effects of literacy and the huge detachment, the illusion of detachment it created. So the scientists are there originally just observing, and then they started to invent stuff during the industrial age, so then they got into rapidly inventing whatever they could and ignoring the social effects. Now the social effects are, are so uh, disturbing that people, uh, that science even has to pretend and, and, and give a nod to that. They're concerned about the effects of GMO and this and that. But things are roaring along so uh, expans expansively that we may be moving into new levels of changed matter where pollution is not even a problem. Uh, and uh, peak oil would never happen and these kind of things that people are concerned with. So when you have in your... 2013 history of coal fusion calendar the early years you have this quote from sir arthur clark saying tons of hydrogen and tons of deuterium i agree that hydrogen and deuterium are part of this situation but the other parts are what you know, humans have not expected and uh fortunately we uh, we did it we developed it and just to make people um, think it's silly uh the key part is the human fingernail and, uh, <laughs> well, um, can now, you... I want to tell you something here. Uh, McLuhan said we retrieve a lot of primitive awareness. Terence McKenna called it the, uh, the archaic revival. You know, electric media takes us back to pre-literacy, pre-literate conditions of sensibility. It's not completely that, but it brings back some of that. And if you notice, you know, the shaman tradition, they would pay, they'd mix together their healing modalities and they'd have fingernails and human hair and body parts. It's like they instinctively knew that all, all uh, intellectual or science or creativity or art making, anti-creativity that a human being uh, produces seems to come from our bodies. 
that's probably a, a, an idea that's embedded in a lot of Aboriginal cultures, that our bodies, I mean, they make a lot out of breathing and breath. Our bodies contain incredible power. So isn't it interesting that if we look at the actual cold, fu- cold fusion breakthrough, this uh, battery, that it would include all efforts of science and wisdom and security and invention all through all the cultures in history. We'd find crumbs everywhere. So not only would we find crumbs in Newton or crumbs in Einstein or crumbs in Pons and Fleischmann, we would find crumbs in medieval cultures, in Chinese culture, in Aboriginal cultures, and even the most primitive stuff, which involves shamanism and fingernails, like voodoo. See, so you, uh, since I know what this battery is, I am impressed with how it is really an externalization of the book Finnegan's Wake, which has uh, the residue of every language and every culture possible and every technology embedded in that book. Joyce may be one day, James Joyce, be considered one of the intellectual creators of cold fusion because he actually presented in book form what the formula would involve, the merger of every system and every technological and cultural thing that had been invented to come together in this one incredible convergence. And so just when you think of fingernails, think of voodoo, think of uh, you know, primitive shamanistic rites, and that they get the nod too, they're included. Isn't that an amazing idea? Well, um, what I'm understanding you're saying is you're following the idea of McLuhan's technology in the sense that every new technology retrieves something from the past. So as we go through this transformation here in the end of uh, 2012 into the cold fusion environment, we are transforming our technology from this uh, external expanding visual space, which began uh, 2,500 years ago or even earlier when writing began, but of course As McLuhan has shown, it was the phonetic alphabet that created uh, Western science and uh, visual space. And so now as we do this shift and we flip into this uh, new cold fusion technology, aren't we retrieving those pre-Western civilization modalities that involve what could be said shamanism? Yes, it, it, we are retrieving the extension of tactility. The uh, the caveman couldn't even uh, see his body parts. He didn't even know he had feet. He could walk around and feel himself and be mobile, but he did not have a high level of visualization or maybe even ear tuning. They operate on such a level of uh, proprioceptive feeling, you could say, that we would call it, if we were forced to be that way, we'd call it ESP. But it's really just the initial interplay of the senses with no one particular uh, sense being exaggerated or extended. Uh, it's when you start to extend into speech that you start getting tribal acoustic societies. And then when you extend into writing, you get uh, literate visual societies. And so the bias goes from the ear to the eye. But the bias of primitive man is, is tactility. And we're retrieving that bias. So today, the average citizen uh, in the super-industrialized parts of the world uh, usually responds to most things by shrugging and going, whatever. 
and they're not too keen on imposing their values or their systems on everybody. They let everybody uh, do what they want to do. This is it's an actual Simpsons type family, the cartoon where everybody's you know two years old. Uh, you have different pockets reacting into going into fundamentalism, but the majority of people have pretty well become so passive and accepting because they cannot keep up with the Android meme and its extensions. So they've moved, and they can't visualize where it's going. That's why uh, I think Web 2.0 was so popular is that people were fanatically feeling that there was less opportunity to connect with anybody. And so that's why you walk along the beach here in Maui or anywhere in the, in the world, and you'll see people constantly checking to see if they're still connected to something. This is a deep paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they're looking. They say, oh, yeah, there's still somebody sending me something. Uh, there's still a possible so- human dimension here. That is a very tactile, you know, swampy, invisible, almost in, inaudible, feeling, probing, don't even want to call it a hive mind, that we actually experience. And uh, out of that, uh, so you see why a lot of people go into channeling and psychotic states of mind or drug taking uh, and why marijuana would be legalized. Uh, it, it's uh, the old rules that visual space had brought in and even tribal acoustic space of the 20th century aren't holding up anymore. So we're, we're going around this great mood mud of uh, tactile retrieval plus we do have uh, the ability to read and a bit of legacy of the visual detachment, but the detachment that the science archetype represented is not possible anymore. And you can even see it the way science after World War II just became a business, and science was um, bought and paid for by whoever, anybody who had the money. So the values of the humanist version of science and visual space of the 19th, 18th centuries fell apart. So science has been, quote, corrupt and commercial and involved with... Um, you know, very contingent operations and ready to abandon the situation. You, you see this in uh, in uh, James Bond movies. I, I had only seen one many decades ago, but I decided to look at all of them. And you have an exact description of a situation where usually some guy invents something that is uh, a threat to the superpowers, and then he moves up into outer space and circulates the planet and threatens to snipe the whole planet. That is a good image of how science is up for the for the grabs, and anybody could grab it and has no real sense of community values and just hijacks it for whatever perverted version of power. And and the Pentagon may be in that situation, even China, even the government of China. But there is a uh, an advantage to this tactility that nobody knows really who's in charge of what anymore, and anything can break through. It's such a hyper decentralized situation. Uh, Big Brother doesn't apply anymore. It might apply in the United States or in France and these geographical areas, but there's just rampant anarchy going on in Africa and in other parts of Asia uh, that um, can have a lot of uh, benefits as well as uh, tragedies. So so the point is here, we are totally in an inaudible, invisible environment here. That's what tactility means. And then, luckily, I stumbled across some uh, colleagues where we actually were able to harness this tactile situation. So a scientist who begins to talk tactile in his, in his physical models is Jack Zerfati. Jack Zerfati is, um, is the one who entertains uh, superluminal or post-speed of light thinking. He tries to formalize it, mathematize it, visualize it. 
And he's also very ironic about his media image and, and the coincidences that come out of this. He, he's, he's like a caveman living in the media mix and, and synchronicity is the order of the day. Uh, that is a beginning uh, point that uh, the listener to this interview uh, can be happy that uh, there's no elite anymore in terms of who knows what. It's, what it does lead to is rampant paranoia and uh, mafia-ridden, gang-ridden situations where people hijack whatever environment technology can, and that's called hackers. Hackers, uh, um, you know, they, you know, uh, there's the situation I've been told, uh, you know, the old uh, people, marketers that call you. Well, the situation now where if you pick up a marketer's phone, you're charged. <laughs> they, get, they get money just by uh, calling you, and if you answer, they get money from it. You don't have to say anything. Have you heard of that? It, it's no. So, yeah, it's so convoluted, the hacking technology, that, that they can call your phone, and if you answer it, a credit goes to their phone. <laughs> okay? So uh, this leads to all kinds of uh, scrupulous um, antisocial behavior. So the most apocalyptic or Armageddon kind of scenarios that people could imagine uh, that William Burroughs laid out and other science fiction people like Philip K. Dick has happened over the last 20 years. So um, you're going to have to relax well, and allow uh, about wait, 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 Ruby, Ruby. So you're going to have to relax and allow about this situation. And, and you know, it's a joke when anybody like Rossi or anybody goes forward and says they got a battery and they go out in a press conference world and try to drum up investors. That'll always end up to be a fiasco. Because, it's, first of all, it will be infiltrated, and it will be stolen, and uh, you actually haven't got a place to deposit any money you make out of this. This is no trustworthy institution. It is that paranoically bad. But notice that you, Ruby, can sit here talking about this stuff, and it doesn't affect you immediately. You have a pretty good life there in Los Angeles, pretty comfortable. Uh, there are lots of institutions that are protecting this and that. The cops are there. But what the problem is is anarchy can break out in the middle of an institution at any point. Uh, you know, the uh, Rodney King riots. That's a case of the uh, L.A. police uh, erupting in anarchy. And this anarchistic uh, uh, uncontrollable force, which John Bojard has written very articulately about, uh, Bojard, B-A-U-D-R-I, L-L-A-R-D, um, this anarchy is uh, what is unleashed, and anybody can be uh, knocked off, killed uh, at, at any point. It represented in the world of the suicide uh, bombers in Iraq in the in 10 years, seven, five years ago. So uh, I, I want you to become totally terrified and how you cannot monitor. That's why we're in a post-information society. You know, there's no point watching the news or hearing what this press conference or that press conference uh, is saying. Uh, it does not hold up to the, um, to the dangers that will befall you. And the most spiritual reaction, the, mo the most, uh, 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 let's say, the most beneficial reaction you have in this is just assume you've already been killed and relax and allow about it. And you'll find that when you're in that relaxed mood that none of this negativity ever come to you. That's it. Um, so you've got you to do a mental jujitsu move to, to survive, to stay viable today. Okay, so anyways, that's another aspect. Um, can, of the you, can you define for the, uh, our Cold Fusion Now listeners what you and McLuhan call a mental imprint and uh, – why it's so hard for people to change their mental imprint when faced with a new paradigm-changing technology? Because I, I don't think uh, uh, you can influence another human being. 
There's no way any information exchange I give you uh, will deeply affect you and neither anything you say uh, would deeply affect me unless it was my uh, pleasure or bliss to uh, enjoy uh, what you tell me. So there has to be enjoyment and usually new information uh, upsets the identity of someone, of anybody, because they're basing themselves on what they already know. So uh, to begin to tell uh, good news, like a cold fusion battery, is actually bad news for most people because it's asking them to change. And people uh, are uh, able to withdraw from the uh, apparent imposition of change because they are unchangeable. I mean, that's what, uh, you know, the uh, Ten Commandments of Moses, one of them is, you know, thou shalt not murder. It doesn't mean that you morally shouldn't murder. It means you cannot murder anybody. You literally can't kill anybody unless they want to be killed. And now this gets into another aspect of uh, how every death is suicide. But that is a controversial statement and uh, necessary for understanding the present. But uh, I'm, I'm going to drop that. So because nobody can be influenced, they only pretend their influence to their pleasure. And it usually involves a lot of social jockeying uh, where uh, they see their benefits for their uh, security or happiness would lie, who they align with. So knowledge is very um, superficial. Uh, a belief system is just something we've been thinking and talking about for a long time. So you cannot change anybody. And we are not, my team is not going to change anybody with what, what I'm saying here. We're not trying to change anybody. We're just going to do it. We're just going to implement this. And you might not even find out about it. You could live today in, in a, a womb of information and never know anything that's going on in other parts of the chip body or the world, or the four bodies. So McLuhan never used the word mental imprint. I never used it. So what, um, what are you thinking of? McLuhan did say that... Uh, I'm not sure. I thought McLuhan uh, described the perceptions and of a, of a technology as affecting a mental imprint. In other words, like when you brush your teeth every day, you fire certain neurons in your brain, and when you do that every day, the same pathways fire up, and you don't really have to think about it because it becomes autonomic. And when a new technology comes, it, cha- it challenges a person to uh, have to learn new things, create new neural pathways, and create a new mental imprint. I see what you mean. And the- yeah. Uh, and nobody uh, does anything unless it's going to uh, give gives them the notion they're going to feel better. And they're gladly change. And McLuhan used to say that nothing educates unless it has a, uh, educa- an entertaining factor, unless it seduces you a bit, uh, allows you to take in the new uh, statement or environment. So it, it, learning is always pleasurable, but it's at your you know, will and your decision. So um, well, that's now, here, I, I want why to tell you. Now, let me just add this point. You were talking about visual space. The illusion of the printing press, and this is what McClellan did write about, a whole book called The Gutenberg Galaxy. The illusion of of the printing press, it created this visual space that everybody thought they were homogeneous and shared and were able to connect and and, and impinge and, and influence each other. That was a total subjectivity that the printing press created. And we've watched as the last 50 years of the electronic world and the digital world where people more and more are indifferent to changing other people. They don't mind performing getting paid, 
But the idea that we live in a homogeneous space doesn't apply anymore. Everybody more and more understands we're in, in the multiple consciousnesses, multiple heterogeneous spaces, and who would even begin to impose a common thing over the whole, over any, what part of the, what part of the culture would you do it? So the breakdown of the visual space idea of matching, that truth is based on me matching what I know with you and what other people know and what we see all on the same page. We're all on the same page. That's a joke phenomenon now. Nobody could ever be on the same page, even in the way they live. They live in so many different environments and automobiles and, and iPhones and, and iPads and different spaces. That it, Where do you get agreement? You get agreement in book fads. The Da Vinci Code, the Harry Potter Codes, the old medium of matching in visual space, the book, becomes, and this is all the publishing industry can survive on now, the book industry, is they hope for a huge hit where suddenly people say, let's all agree to share this fantasy about Harry Potter books and, and make it a huge success and make J.K. Rowling the richest person in the world so that we have a sense of community, a sense of homogeneous, uniform, visual, continuous space. So it's only a fad, it's only a spasm, as Bojard and Croker would call it, and it's uh, not the actual way we live. So isn't it interesting that books can only be useful as an afterimage of homogeneity and uh, matching it on the same page, and whoever comes up with a book that meets that need, and there's, um, there can be uh, support for the theory that this is well-managed. I mean, the Da Vinci Code was passed around a, a year before it burst on the scene. I, I read about it in the New York Observer before it was released, and the industry was talking it up. So there may be some manipulation there to, to find out which is like a lottery, which book's going to uh, be the one. But that is, uh, that is not uh, what people live in right now. Right now, I assume, Ruby, uh, you have not been checking your email, You've not been looking at your iPhone, uh, and neither have I. I don't have those uh, apparatuses. I never carry a, an iPhone or anything around with me. Uh, but the point is, is that if we were the average citizen, we'd be checking our email, and we would never have been able to talk this long without uh, interacting with our uh, digital life. Well, um, you know, let me ask you about some parallels between the inability of uh, tribal cultures, and I'm talking about non-visual space, early tribal cultures, and their inability to see the horizon and see visual space, um, because visual space is a learned quality, and the inability of liter the literate mind, whatever's left of it today in the hardware, uh, segments of our society, their inability to perceive the new environment that we're living, where you know this virtual reality, where everything's disappeared and we're just interacting with images. Yeah, and what are the parallels there? Yeah, Ruby, interacting with images is a good definition of tactility. It's not a sense; it's the interplay of all the senses, and that's the way people live today. So they're very tactile. Now, uh, about visual culture, it's a meme, and it, then it is an afterimage. And it's a meme that struts the global theater, and another term for the global theater shrunk is the Android meme. So within the Android meme, uh, what people call the culture wars is the uh, strutting of their stuff, of different um, memes, uh, cultural value systems. And we call it uh, a kind of uh, a war. Um, 
And this war for attention, for preserving your meme, it creates incredible wealth in terms of economic turnover and cash flow. Uh, but the, um, today in the United States, the fundamentalism of the printed book meme of visual space, it gets launched into and around a character named Ron Paul and the Tea Party. And it's not that the liberals and the uh, neocons and the old political establishments are intelligent or uh, non-reactionary. They're just not even on the table. The only thing that can enter the political space called the United States, which is a visual bounded situation built on a visual constitution, has to be the meme and the dialogue of visual space. And that's why the Tea Party developed the power they have over uh, over the um, bureaucrats of the old uh, hardware Congress. So just, just there, uh, you see the value of the Tea Party as a uh, whipping boy for people to beat up and make fun of, like in Saturday Night Live and, and in the regular chip body media. It's only there to be, uh, suffer abuse, but it gets temporary power as it gets abused. And that meme that does nothing to stop with the tactility that everybody is actually living in. So um, that's another reason why anything that's on the news is usually uh, not relevant to what is actually going on. Do you actually know what happened to uh, the people in Katrina, in the New Orleans, the people suffering Katrina? Do you know what happened to the Haiti earthquake? Do you know what happened to the tsunami in the Indonesian areas? Do you follow up on all that? Do you know what developers have? No, unless you go to a particular website. So, and then you're relying on imagery. Did you, did you ever, had you, have you ever talked to somebody who's actually been in New Orleans over the last six months yourself? Uh, hmm. And I, it's not that I you, can't remember. You can't remember. It's very, it's, it, you're not involved with it. You know, it's a, it's a, Hardware body, biological body, disaster zone, just like Haiti is, and it's very hard to to get involved. If you go down there, you can be a squatter and contribute in this and that. But there's a TV series right now called Treme, T R E M E, which is all about uh, what is going on, approximately what's going on. It's very interesting how how scandalous it is for people to be want, monitoring their chip information, their chip body, their iPads and iPhones, Blackberries. Uh, to the degree they do, and not taking responsibility for the effects of that maelstrom on physical bodies around the world. And so if they get mad at something like the Tea Party rising up or crazy irrationalists like Alex Jones uh, or even the believers in cold fusion, they have to understand that uh, that's what people uh, use to organize their social image of themselves. And that's an, that's, that brings us back to Ponds of Fleischmann. They had the naivety and I understand they were reluctant even to uh, have a press conference and release it, but uh, they unfortunately released it, and uh, then there was a, a bad scene from that point on. Their naivety as scientists uh, about the chip environment of their day and the mediascape uh, is typical of everybody. So you have to, uh, to understand what I'm talking about. You have to become very educated on the effects of media and the Android meme as well as uh, have the luck to find out what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, which well, is just... so many people have identities that are tethered to a fixed point of view. And a certain Why... kind of intelligence, Ruby. 
they are good at what they do in the little world. They just don't recognize that they're specialist abilities and specialist talents. And I don't consider anybody stupid in this world. Everybody's got some particular ability to do something. And, and all the industries that supply us are made up of people who do their jobs well just for a city to function, let alone all the tankers going around the world and all the industries those tankers uh, get products from. You think of the actual incredible efficiency that goes on um, – you would see how puny it is for one to think that they could get a view of the big picture. You can't visualize all the incredible stuff that's going on. I mean, has there been any... Well, why is, why is taking a point of view and fixing yourself to a particular point of view uh, detrimental in such an environment? Because um, it makes you think uh, that you um, are protected. And you aren't. Um, just think of all the people that are going in the hospitals and got sick, and yet they're intelligent, sophisticated um, college graduates who uh, thought they understood their bodies and understood this and that, and, and then they end up getting sick and, and, and dying very quickly. Uh, the, the bad stuff jumps in on people, and that shows how um, they weren't paying attention. And the reason they were failed at paying attention is that they were using their uh, specialist role, their daily life, their, their, their network of information and, and being informed. Uh, they thought that was enough. Nothing is enough to understand today. Not one bit of information, uh, not at one source. So the best thing to do in that situation is to uh, relax and allow whatever that means to you and uh, get over your fears of being killed because you're, you're pretty well dead anyways. And then, um, then you start moving around uh, and uh, enjoying whatever minute you're still alive. You know, hey, I'm still here. It's incredible. Uh, so you have, to, you have to adopt extreme positions to counter uh, the specialist view. You have to, have to get used. And, and you see this in pop culture. Many people run off and take yoga and meditate and try to get rid of their ego and you know, writers like Eckhart Tolle become popular. There's all these amazing maneuvers people are making to prepare for what I'm talking about. Uh, it's just that um, they're, they're a little too hyper about it. They don't know how to relax. They, they actually don't successfully uh, kill themselves. They uh, hold on too much. And once you kill yourself, you realize, holy shit, I'm still alive. I'm still here. Hey, hey, they didn't catch me. I got another 10 minutes. So uh, when, I, when I'm talking about what's going on, I'm including hysteria, panic, uh, schizophrenia, paranoia, and ecstasy. You know, Alex Jones just specializes in paranoia. Uh, Ob Obama specializes in, well, a, a bland form of schizophrenia, hysteria, and panic, and a little ecstasy. <laughs> he doesn't encourage paranoia, though his opposition would. So he's a bland quadrophenia, but it's just bland. It's not extreme enough. Uh, Someone who's extreme and develops it well is, say, someone like Henry Kissinger. You know why he's so extreme? You haven't heard a thing about him. You, what's he doing? Have you heard anything from Mr. Kissinger? No. He's smart. He's staying off the, the radar. That's another point. That's why it should be – I encourage unknowns anonymous, staying anonymous as much as possible and off the radar screen uh, Oprah Winfrey or any of these Barbara Walters people. If you actually are known and get into the media as a figure, you're going to suffer the main engine of the economy called abuse value. Now, I'm swarming all over the place. Here I am announcing that I have a cold fusion battery, and it's pretty powerful, incredibly, you know, superhumanly powerful, 
And at the same time, I'm swarming all over the place about other issues and other statements, controversial and stupid and extreme and McLuhan. This is the way the average person lives. So I'm just miming back what people actually are thinking and feeling and why they give up and go around with as much as possible with no mind. Right? And it's a good strategy mechanism. No, never mind. Well, do you feel that there's a possibility that we as a species can calm ourselves down and that the new technology which will create a new uh, effect within our identities could be of a peaceful and calm, harmonic nature? Uh, I see people being calm every day. Uh, I lived in Manhattan for many years. A um, lot of noise, a lot of uh, uh, ridiculous um, reactions. But overall, when you think of how people uh, don't have many car crashes and don't many plane crashes and no many, not many subway crashes in Manhattan, uh, I have to conclude that they're pretty super aware people and, and doing their uh, roles pretty effectively. Um, now you get now you have the environmental. But at the on. same time, we have uh, we have a lot of violence. We have uh, you know mass extinctions. We have um, uh, a, a lot of pain in, in our society and in this world. It was my belief that a new technology such as cold fusion gives us the opportunity to live a completely different style. We can turn away from this expansion and this um, violent intrusion into other people's business uh, that our Western culture has engaged in and um, live quite differently on this planet. And my hope is that it's the, it gives us the opportunity for uh, peace together on, no, no, no. on, okay. on Mars. Okay, so you have, um, you have read a little McLuhan. You failed to get his main point. There's nothing but pain. And you know what, what pain is? Pain is tactility. The, uh, the, the proprioceptive involvement of pain is another word for tactility. So we've moved into a pre, we've gone from a pre-lettered, very painful caveman life into a uh, subdued acoustic uh, painful life and then subdued visual life and then retrieved ancient tactile pain. No, no, the way uh, cold fusion is going to bring in incredible anxieties and tensions and searching for identity. As more and more people won't understand how it happened, they'll have an identity quest and that leads to violence. I think that violence is to, to work towards peace or to have an image of peace and uh, all the pastoral images go with that is to set yourself up to being uh, murdered pretty quickly. And I don't mean to be paranoid. I don't, uh, I don't have a gun or anything. But I know that um, the world is going to get more agonizing and more anxious and more, and more images of violence on the media uh, that will continue. And that's the point. Whatever violence they show on the media, look at how many airplanes are successfully flying today. Have we heard of any plane crashes the last couple of weeks? And, and maybe there was one three weeks ago, but that will be the first one in, say, seven months. I mean, look at all the planes and how vulnerable they are to bumping into each other if the air traffic controller falls asleep or something. Isn't it incredible? 
the uh, yeah, but the at the, the same sky. time we have at the same time we have uh, airplanes using fossil fuel emitting carbon dioxide that's uh, polluting our atmosphere, changing the environment, you know, contributing to acid rain, destroying coral reefs. Um, so that's a pretty violent uh, situation. Yeah, well, I'm actually going to have the solution, the little, uh, the little bug that's going to eat that all up. That's one of the effects of cold fusion. Now, we talk about getting endless energy. Now, if this cold fusion... Well, see, that's what I'm saying. Uh, I'm looking at cold fusion, uh, and, and again, the, what I'm discussing here is not the transitional period. I, I, I understand that every new technology engenders a war, and that's, that's McLuhan 101. But if we can get through a transitional period... Uh, the possibility for living differently than we have been uh, so far in human history and prehistory uh, is upon us. And yeah, we, um, we, we my question very... to you is, do you see that possibility? I see more and more variety of experience and more and more of what we've had before, mm -hmm. but more mm -hmm. new kinds of experience. Um, in sociology, in social mores, in uh, entertainment, in art, in recreation, in, uh, in the types of sexuality people have. It's going to be nothing but endless variety. But all of this will threaten uh, the identities of people at different phases. And so peace will, um, peace will occur in pockets of, of temporary autonomous zones. Uh, where, where is it right now? Well, the whole planet. We had nuclear war yet? No. So we're peaceful on that level around the whole planet. But there's a lot of little wars going on. But they're over there and they're over here and they're not near me. So it's pretty peaceful where I am. So if you, do, if you stop thinking of the planet as a uniform homogeneous globe, you should, you should actually come back to the flat earther view. It's a flat space with uh, millions of activities in an infinite spectrum uh, happening. But it's better to probably think of it as a multi-tiered. You know, the, the idea of the sphere is so obsolete. The planet is not spherical. It is multi-tiered, multi-phased. It's, it's like a Terrence McKenna, you know, ayahuasca trip or DMA, DMT trip. That's the actual world we live in when you look at the chip body. The word we use is not holo holographic, but anamorphic. Anamorphous, uh, anamorphosis is a trump leal, a trick of the eye. Uh, that is... So this uniform space of security will never be established as a majority meme. It could, it could have a billion people in, in a pretty secure space, but the other seven billion will be in other kinds of spaces. So we have to break up uh, our uh, images of what Earth is. And this is where the environmentalists are way off. Um, there's a new movie out, and it seems to have heard me. I said about six months ago that the Pacific Ocean is so deep that if you go down into the Pacific Ocean, dive down into it, you would enter a space that's bigger than the universe than the Hubble's telescope sees. You know, the Hubble telescope can see all big chunks of the universe, billions and billions and billions of years. Well, actually, the Pacific Ocean is bigger than that space. Now, how could that be? Well, it's not, it can't be uh, understood or imaged if you think of a flat earth with, with the crust and then the water and then the core and all this stuff. These conventional images uh, that science gives you are, don't apply. 
because you, if there are other worlds, and we don't know if there are or not, and there, that means there can be, these other worlds could be colliding with Earth. So you always destroy the image that you have in your mind of where you think you are. I'm sitting here looking out over beautiful Maui Bay in Hawaii, and I certainly don't believe I'm here, what I see. What I see, I don't believe in. I'm in space right now with you in a tactile interaction that can be recorded, well, it is being recorded, but can be broadcast, and different people here at different times, and they will engage the space that we're creating right now, and effects from that will happen. So I am not in Maui right now. I'm in a space of having infinite echoes potentially being created. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to visualize based on what my eyes see the uh, causes and effects of the world I'm in. And certainly um, uh, to think that this were, you know, to these guys, uh, you've got people up here on the volcano I live on, uh, Haleakala, who are uh, got one of the biggest observatories, the best in the world, uh, looking out there, checking the stars, checking for tidal waves, whatever they do. And uh, I'm not relying on them to protect me. They're just using their... Uh, the instruments of visuality too much. Hmm. So we're in a tactile volcano. The caldera, they're worried about this caldera in Yellowstone Park. Well, the caldera is the uh, digital android meme environment. It has destroyed everything that anybody in any culture ever thought was stable. And the only reaction is, well, I'm going to blow you up. I'm going to strap this bomb on myself. I'm going to go over and blow up your little lunch table. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's a common reaction around this place now. And that's very antisocial in traditional cultural terms, isn't it? So, you oh, see yeah. that bringing forth cold fusion is a pretty tricky uh, situation when you're in a largely tactile world, which means much, much uh, macros macroscopic gesticulation of pain and ecstasy, and schizophrenia, and hysteria, and panic. Well, uh, one, one of the motivations for cold fusion now to begin was the BP oil catastrophe, which was um, destroyed the Gulf ecosystem, killed a lot of animals, dolphins, turtles, uh, they smothered in oil and couldn't breathe. They were just covered in oil. Uh, the animals are still dying today because of this oil. Um, do you think that uh, it is worthwhile to take in to take a point of view and sort of ex and and accelerate this process of cold fusion for clean energy to um, save some first nature species? I don't think it's necessary to save them, but if people uh, listen to me and follow some of the products I offered, uh, we could help uh, a lot better than, than what the federal government is doing or whoever's doing it. Uh, we got all kinds of solutions over here, but uh, it would put a lot of people out of work. Do you realize that uh, our, our RNA drops, which are the most phenomenal medicine on the planet today, that's what I... I see it happening that way. I don't make any claims for it, but the effects of those who use it are pretty incredible. You know, if they actually said, okay, uh, Bob, you, you can run the uh, Department of Health here, or whatever it is in the United States, and you enforce everybody in RNA drops, that would be so incredible 
in terms of what happened with people's health. But the majority of them would get totally anxious because they'd lose their jobs because so much of the jobs are involved with the pharma, big pharma service industry. So you actually, uh, if you come forth with a very successful invention, you're, uh, you know, the god of destruction in terms of upsetting people. Now, are we supposed to sit around and worry and about that? And that's what we want. See, that's that was what our, uh, you know, to use a visual space term, our goal was was to upset the fossil fuel industry. That's and, right. Now listen uh, to you. Now listen to you. I was just start just as you started to say as you said that I was going to say, uh, are we going to worry about that? No, we're going to wipe out jobs. <laughs> <laughs> you see, the anar- we we are anarchists. See, here's the point. Everybody becomes an anarchist in terms of what they want happening. There's all kinds of companies forming, and they don't give a damn if their company uh, becomes successful and wipes out other companies. So even just being a normal entrepreneur and, and implementing some business is a form of warfare. And this is another example of the tactile, painful world we live in. <laughs> Nothing but warfare all around you. <laughs> it's, it's not in the gun shooting, but other kinds of environmental technological warfare. Just going out and inventing a new software program. Look, can you imagine security around uh, Microsoft versus Apple and all these big companies and what they have going to protect their asses as they plunder each other and attack each other? It's incredible that I see that the regular news that that uh, Diane Sorry put out is a big distraction of some kind of anthropomorphic level of a, of a little bad little scene happened here, a little disaster there, all to cover up the huge violence that all the major corporations and small businesses are doing just to survive every day. See, there's the joke. It's better to use your imagination about what's going on than to even be informed because your imagination, think of the most preposterous scenarios, just go on uh, Information Farm, uh, he's pretty good, informationfarm.blogspot.com, and just look at all the movie trailers he posts, and, and just look at a movie trailer. That's a closer imaging of the world we live in than anything that comes through a sterile, chase, uh, objective news report. It's, it's hilarious. And then even to have a solution amidst this, uh, you know, here I've got this, these incredible solutions, but I have a great sense of humor about it because I'm in the middle of 5,000 warfares, technological battles and species and mass extinctions while in the middle of it. <laughs> Just think of it. This is where you got to start. People, start upgrading your imagination and use your imagination to define what's going on. You'll find it's pretty accurate. Well, how... Do you see you haven't that been imaging like this. You've been imaging a way of let's lock out the oil industry. Let's bring in images of peace. Don't use images of peace. Actually, you know, uh, following McLuhan's tetrad, whatever you start imaging, it'll flip into its opposite. So you best start imaging violent images so it flips into its peaceful. If you're imaging <laughs> peaceful images, you're going to flip into violence. So there's the modern formula for mental sanity today. Well, what, what? Have what artists do you see have prefigured this coming transformation into the cold fusion environment? Uh, Wyndham Lewis, uh, James Joyce, and Marsha McLuhan, and Frank Zappa, and myself. And that's the top five. Mm-hmm. And uh, how does their art, what elements of that art have? Um, have actually revealed this uh, new technological service environment? 
they went about it very violently and discharged and got rid of whatever they're creating uh, today. They discharged and dumped it in the garbage tomorrow. They, it was the ability to move fast and to keep up with the change as rapidly as possible, creating a rapid series of innovations as air stats or fake anti-environments. That's what Wyndham Lewis did, James Joyce did, McLuhan did, Zappa did, and that's what I do. Uh, we we uh, destroy our work as fast as possible so new work can come in. And that's the, that's the only way you can mime a world where innovation uh, 24-7 and the services and disservices of that uh, is uh, the citizen's average fate. But isn't that sort of chasing after a ghost uh, when no, innovation... When innovation happens so quickly, I think McLuhan said something like useless information stockpiles exponentially. Um, when an artist mimes that kind of churning, uh, quick churning, uh, how does that how does that affect uh, the the viewer or the listener or the participant in that art? Well, hopefully it creates schizophrenia, panic, hysteria, ecstasy, or um, uh, paranoia. Uh, that's the effects you want to create because uh, Lewis, McLuhan, Joyce, Zapp, and myself, what you which you should notice is that we're still here, still doing it. We're not affected by it. We've learned to operate in the eye of the storm. That's the role of the artist and every citizen today. Not to run around, you know, gathering beans, bullets, and bullions and getting locked up in some log cabin somewhere and waiting for the Armageddon. No, no, you've got to be able to, to uh, use all your wits and senses right there on the highway, right on the street store, right there on the subway, right there in, um, on the bridge as you're driving over, right there on the beach. You have to realize that what you see in the environment you think you're in, you're not in. You're in the middle of an Armageddon, a huge battle between incredible forces 24-7. <laughs> and those forces can be nano-size. All right? They don't have to be big to be incredible. They can be tiny. And you have to learn how to uh, have a poise in the middle of that. And usually the best strategy is, well, I got killed a long time ago. Uh, I'm, I'm traveling into the Bardos. I'm heading into higher levels of heaven in the guff. Uh, the more you image yourself uh, not as a stable thing that has to be preserved and you have to avoid the uh, coffin as much as possible, that, that's such a silly way to live, uh, and it won't work. The, the, the sooner you uh, – uh, no, the, the more you adopt that strategy, the faster you'll be in the coffin. So what I'm, even what I'm saying now sounds, I think, what I imagine to the uh, regular listener is this guy is a loony, a raving loony. <laughs> a crackpot, ridiculousness. Yes, and I'm just telling you the environment we live in. I'm not a loony within this environment. I'm just telling you and describing you all the digital signals are happening around us right now and going through us. Just think of how many TV programs and radio shows and, and interviews like this being done by other people and blogging and, 
and uh, YouTube making and uh, drug dealing and wife swapping and stealing of kids and <laughs> sex trade and going to Thailand and engaging the prostitutes or, or ripping off the rice fields and China, all this stuff going on. Isn't it interesting how you don't go around thinking about this stuff? You, you go, okay, I've got to go over to my kitchen. I'm going to make a little bread and toast me, put a little hamburger and cheese on. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll eat that. Oh, now I'll answer the phone. I'll call up Eli and see if he's made his video yet. Is he finished editing his video? You keep it on real <laughs> local terms, right? Which is not, not bad, but the disservice is you forget the storm you're walking around in. And the, and the goal is to have poise as you're more aware of the storm. I'm creating a whole new therapy here, right on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> and that's uh, and uh, that's based on on things you can't hear. Look how much music is going on. How much sound noise is happening in the computers? I mean, you know, just you walk around the streets. Another example of how amazing people are. They go around with the little white buds in their ears, and they're listening to all kinds of racket. You know, and I don't hear any of it. It's very nice of them to do that. Very nice to keep it quiet. <laughs> There's a lot of chaos going in their eardrums, but I'm not hearing it. I see it on, on the walkway here on the beach, you know, all these people jogging with the little buds in their ears. Who knows what they're listening to, but you can tell, you can be sure that it's, it's puny compared to the huge thunderstorm of noise that's happening right now 24-7. So, yes, I think I'm right. You go look at the latest, wildest movie trailer, and that is your neighbor's home. Now, Let how do you bring forth cold fusion? You see how Ponds of Place are pretty naive. <laughs> they thought, oh, we'll make a little announcement here because we've been working in our quiet lab for five years and monitoring the measurement and making the statistics, and, oh, look, a little bit of extra heat. Okay, let's go out there. And they open the door, and they think it's all quiet, and they type in the facts, and they send the message over, and they didn't know that they didn't open the next door, which would be thousands of dinosaurs, like in Jurassic Park, screaming by, which is actually what society is. They didn't notice that. They, they were in their little quiet womb. Uh, and, and everybody is uh, always trying to live in that little quiet womb. They call that making it. They, they call that being a billionaire. You know, that's uh, not having to work. That's what everybody's looking for. Nice little quiet zone. But uh, rest assured, I'm one of the richest people in the world, and uh, you're going to have to learn to live in a uh, very noisy tomb. Very noisy tomb. And enjoy it. And you can see in pop culture the puny efforts of the sadomasochists or the uh, transgender and all these people altering their chemical bodies and sticking pins in it, the jackasses. This is such childish work. It's too much emphasis on the chemical body uh, and its uh, pleasures and pains and thinking it's a big radical revolution if you, you, know, you stick your penis by your ear and put your nose down by your foot and alter your genetic structure. You think that's radical? No, no, you only deal with one-fifth of yourself, your physical body. What about your chip body and your invisible astral body? How many people have you raised from the dead today? That's a question that every kid should, every kid should be asked in, in grade one. How many people did you raise from the dead today, Billy? <laughs> You're really taking it out there, Bob. Yes, well, at the end of the year, I, I got to catch up to the Mayan calendar. I got 13,000 years of noise to match with, to, uh, to be even heard over the next week. I have the most, I started my radio show 
solo by myself with associates who volunteer to come in. But basically, it's the first time I am uh, responsible for my own show. I've been a guest for 30 years on shows and create a lot of good contact. But here I am. In the last uh, six weeks before December 21st, I'm in charge. I've got the only show with the most incredible information, and I'm standing there trying to be audible amidst the din and roar that's coming down the pike the next week. What is this? The six people, it's only five, we're five days away. We've got five days. Well, let me ask you, what will happen to uh, our five bodies after the transformation? Uh, starting in January, also since there's no time, I can pick any time I want. Uh, starting on December 22nd, uh, the convergence of the five body of the four bodies, the, the physical, the astral, the chip, and the TV, and the mystery body, which is all this stuff. Now, talk about ancient retrieval. Think of back when uh, we were able to be horses and animals and wings and fly and all this merging of natural forms that the uh, Aboriginal peoples talk about, the original period when humans were, could adopt any form in natural, animalistic form they could. We're retrieving that. And the genetic uh, industries, they will try to you know, keep up with it by uh, you know, making uh, mutants and all that. But we've already uh, arrived at it on the five-body level, and we're calling these strange forms that, we, uh, that only science fiction and fantasy has talked about, we call it the mystery body. And the mystery body is becoming figger. So you have phenomena like sinkholes. So all of a sudden, you know, you could be, uh, your whole house goes down into a hole. You've, you've heard of those. Nobody knows where, they, where they're coming from or why they're happening. It's the mystery landscape showing up. So I say we're merging chip, TV, astral, and chemical, and mystery body, and moving into the hex attic, which is like you could call it the six-bodied level, a major convergence, uh, and I've been describing the environment around that. It's not a peaceful environment. It's a huge roar. It's the Niagara Falls of, of racket and anxiety, and in the middle of it, if you're cool, you'll have the RNA drops and my cold fusion battery, and you'll just be poised and ready to surf that 40-foot wave. 40-footers coming. Can you handle that? You're going to be able to take the five minutes. You're going to be underwater when it's crashing down on you. You've got to hold your breath for five minutes. Have you been working on that, Ruby? Well, Bob, uh, I have to say, um, I've got the RNA drops. I just need that cold fusion battery. Yes, and uh, it's on your way. Uh, Bob, I think that's a great close to our discussion. There is a solution. We have uh, the RNA drops, the cold fusion battery, and we can sit in the eye of the storm around us, and we can make it through this transition. You did make it. I did make it. <laughs> yes. That's right. Yes. Because all this noise and violence and strang and strum and thern, drang and storm I'm talking about has been going on for most of the 20th century, ever since the electronic environment was dumped on human beings. Just think of it. Just think of the massive amounts of data swapping that's been going on the last 50, 100 years. So you've, you've made it. If you're alive today... Congratulations, no matter how old you are. <laughs> Thank you, and same to you. Yes, and if you, uh, I, I suggest anybody uh, take this recording, play it, play it at least once a week to yourself. You'll be amazed at how it helps you adapt and arrive at that point of poise. Because as long as I describe a terrible scenario, it will flip into a peace and poise that is every person's <laughs> birthright. 
Well, Bob, I want to thank you for speaking with me today uh, and Cold Fusion Now. And I want to thank you for your work in media ecology. Uh, as a teacher of mine, I've learned so much, and I'm very grateful for your time today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity being heard one more time. <laughs> thank you, Ruby. <laughs>